Let's pray together. Father, to you we come with thankful hearts that you have blessed us through this Christmas and New Year's holiday season. You have had your hand upon all of us who have traveled. You've given us the strength to enjoy the new year that you've brought our way. And we trust that throughout 1995, your, your word will be strong in our hearts, your will will be accomplished in our lives, and that we will truly be used of you to accomplish your will in ministering to those around us at work, uh, in our family, in our neighborhood, wherever we are in contact with those that need you. I pray that we will truly be ambassadors for Christ. Lord, I pray that your blessing will be upon each individual here throughout this, this year. And I ask that you'll be present with us now in the teaching and the study of your word. I ask that throughout the Sunday school today, the name of God will be exalted, the word of God will be presented truly, and will change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read the first four verses of Genesis chapter 49 just for a moment of review, maybe to bring us back up to speed. Genesis 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. In the 49th chapter of Genesis, we have what we could call, I suppose, the final scene in the life of Jacob. He summoned his 12 sons to come to his home there in Goshen, in the delta of the Nile, for his final words of blessing and prophecy. We have to kind of picture the scene, I think, if we can. This was a black, goat-haired tent, very, very common of the Bedouins, still used today. In fact, I have slides of, of such tents that I took when I was over in Israel. and. These tents are um, <clears throat> not soundproof, of course, but they're fairly large and are able to accommodate easily the group of individuals that we see in this picture. And as they gathered, uh, Israel was there on his couch, his bed, his deathbed, in fact, in effect, and his sons have gathered around him, I believe in a semicircle, around his bed, probably kneeling so that they would be more down at his eye level. I think if you put yourself in the place of the sons as they were there, we have to remember they're, they're not just 12 comprising one individual, they're 12 individuals. And each of these sons had thoughts running through his mind as he kneeled there before his father to hear what his father would say. And, and I think if you were to be able to see into the minds of Joseph and Benjamin, you would see individuals who have a sense of compassion and love towards their father, Jacob, because they had been, throughout their lives, his favorite sons. 
And they had experienced blessings and, and uh, smiles and pats and things from Jacob that the other sons probably had not. They were sons, of course, of his beloved Rachel. The other sons, Leah's sons, especially Reuben and Simeon and Levi, we, we studied Reuben last time we met, and today we're going to look at Simeon and Levi and, and probably into the life or, or into the prophecy concerning Judah. These most likely, I think, still felt the pain of being the sons of the unloved Leah, kind of like second class. And of course, in the case of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, they also felt the sting of a certain measure of displeasure on the part of their father because Reuben had not proven to be the man that Jacob had hoped that he would be. And Simeon and Levi had acted in, in manners that had brought directly their father's disapproval. And then you have the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, who I think felt even less esteemed in the eyes of their father than did the sons of Leah. Because in their case, their mothers were not even really wives of Jacob. And in effect, they were concubines. They, they were servants. They had been servants to their respective mistresses, the two wives of Jacob. And so these sons undoubtedly felt that their position was even more inferior than that of Leah's sons. But I think whatever were their individual feelings as they looked upon their father and as they awaited his words, I think they all exhibited respect towards this man, this aged patriarch of their clan, the one that they had revered in, to, to one extent or another throughout their lives, uh, the one who had told them of the face-to-face -face encounters he had had with the Almighty, who told them the stories of his father's encounters with God and of his grandfather's encounters with God. They probably in themselves, many of them had heard the words of uh, Isaac themselves, but they also were those who were going to bear the name of this one who was dying before them throughout their lives and their descendants would bear their, his name to this very day. So as he spoke, they listened. And I noted last week that as you read the passage, the second uh, verse there, when he says, gather, to, gather together and hear, the word is Shema, for hear. And, and that isn't just, you know, if you feel like it, listen to what I'm saying. It's pay attention. This is important. And you better do and, and apply whatever it is I say. And, and we noted the fact that <clears throat> he says, Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to your father Israel. He uses both his given name, that of deceiver, supplanter, grabber, grasper, because he had grasped the heel of his brother at the moment of birth, and the name given to him by God, prince with God, or prince before God. And so we have the expression given by Jacob of both characters, and I think I made a point of the two natures that we bear, the old nature and the new nature, and, and this is somewhat representative of that. Whether or not these sons liked the words that their father proclaimed, and certainly Reuben and Simeon and Levi, as we're going to see, weren't particularly pleased by what they heard, but whether 
they liked it or not, they accepted these words as the last will and testament of their father, this clan chief. And I think to a measure they had to suspect that probably God had a plan or a role in, in what was being said. And we will see very clearly that that was so because the prophecies that were made were so accurate that it couldn't have been just the rambling of, of a dying man, but had to be the words inspired by God himself. And so beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, Jacob prophesied concerning his sons and their descendants. It's not just a reference to the individual, but it would be applicable to the descendants that would come in the generations and the centuries ahead. So if you can picture the scene, Jacob here on his bed, long gray beard, nearly sightless eyes, the sons gathered around him in the semicircle, the flickering oil lamps that were common in the Bedouin tents then and even in some cases now. I think his sons were barely perceptible to his nearly sightless eyes. Probably as he looked, all he could see was the shape uh, of, of the sun in the direction in which they were located at the time he began to speak concerning that particular individual. And I think he turned to the right and, and there was Reuben. The, the sons were gathered as closely as twelve could gather, I think, uh, to their father. And Jacob began with the difficult words that we read in verses 3 and 4 of this passage. You are Reuben, my firstborn. My might in the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent, preeminent in power. And then suddenly it makes a big turn, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have the preeminence. Those were not easy words for Jacob to speak concerning his eldest son, the one who was supposed to take over the clan chiefship, if you will. Reuben should have inherited the mantle of leadership. That was his because it was the right of the firstborn. We noted last week, or no, I guess it was three weeks ago. <laughs> we noted three weeks ago that the literal translation here could be that the statement that Jacob was saying, you were supposed to be the bowstring of the clan. And of course, you can see the picture here of the bow. And a bow without a string is useless. You can go around bopping people or things with it, but, you know, it's not terribly useful. But in order to fire the arrow, you've got to have a good string. And he was supposed to be that string that would make the clan powerful and, and cause it to grow and provide it with leadership. But instead, he was as uncontrolled and unstable as water. And uh, we have some uncontrolled, unstable water roiling through some of the creeks and channels around here right now. And he makes a specific point of one event in his life. He says, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. And that, of course, refers back to his act of incest with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. I think it should be pointed out, though, that this act of incest was merely the most glaring example of his weaknesses. He didn't lose the leadership just because of that event. There were many things that led up to it and many things subsequent to it, and, and those, some of those we've already noted as we've moved along here. 
to indicate that this was a quality or a flaw of his character. He did not have the leadership quality necessary, and he didn't make any effort to gain that ability. He just kind of was irresponsible in his actions. And we noted at the time when, when Joseph was to be uh, killed, actually, by his brothers up there near Dothan, he kind of weakly said, let's just throw him in a pit, and he was going to sneak back later and take him out and take him to his father, rather than exerting leadership. I mean, he was the firstborn. He should have been in control, but he wasn't. And then, of course, when they went down to Egypt, who was it that finally took control? It was Judah. You hardly hear anything about Reuben. Reuben did not exert leadership as they faced this mighty prince in Egypt, who turned out to be their brother, but they didn't know that. And as a result, Reuben lost the double portion that was supposed to be the inheritance of the firstborn, and that double portion went to the firstborn of Rachel, that is, to Joseph, and would be expressed in Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he also lost the leadership of the clan, because that would go to the fourthborn, his own blood brother, Judah. Well, let's read beginning at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Is it not a little bit strange when he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers? Duh. You know. After all, all twelve were brothers. So what is he making a point about the fact that Simeon and Levi were brothers? Yes, they are full-blood brothers, sons of Leah, but so were Reuben and, and Judah. So what's the point here? Well, the point is that they were constantly in league together. They were brother brothers. <laughs> they were of one mind and one accord in most of what they did. They kind of hung around together, apparently. And whatever one hatched up, the other immediately followed. And this seems to be why they're called brothers. They thought alike. They acted alike. Jacob's first statement to them is kind of interesting. He says, their swords are implements of violence. I don't know about you, but my common picture of these brothers is, uh, you know, they're out there herding sheep. And what they have is a staff, you know. And, and the, I don't commonly picture them in my mind as out there with a bow and arrow or out there with a sword, uh, as if they were soldiers. But obviously, these men were all acquainted with weapons of war, weapons of hunting, and so Jacob says their swords are implements of violence. And I think what he's meaning by that is that they were of the mentality that we would call shoot first, ask questions later. It was the kind of way, that was the way they functioned, you know, just whip out the sword on the first provocation and, and deal with the issue. They weren't men who went about seeking a diplomatic resolve to whatever the problem was. They sought resolve through violence. This was offensive to Jacob. 
Because from what we can tell, I think, from our study of Genesis, Jacob was a man more like his father than he was these two sons. Remember, Isaac was called a man of peace. A man who, whenever someone contested a well, he said, okay, you can have the well, I'll go dig another. And, and Jacob seems to be more of that mentality. When the two brothers wrought havoc at Shechem, he felt shamed. He felt that all the world would be looking upon him as if he were an odious person. Jacob was not a man of violence. And I don't think he ever forgave them, really, of their rash actions at Shechem when they slew the male population because of the prince's violation of their sister, Dinah or Dina. He points out here in, in the wording that they did not seek his counsel. He was clan chief. I mean, Jacob was in charge of the clan. He was supposed to determine what the clan did. Simeon and Levi hatched up the little plot all by themselves. They didn't go to, to their father and say, look, this is the plan we think we ought to carry out in, in reprisal for the action of Shechem towards our sister. In fact, the two brothers were apparently very upset with their father because he hadn't indicated that they ought to do something about the fact that Dinah had been raped by Shechem. And so they, together, hatched up the plot, and they went over, and they, they slaughtered the male population of Shechem, if you remember, and they carried all the people into captivity, and they took all the animals and whatever else there was as loot. And so Jacob did not want his honor tainted by being found in the council with these two sons of his. And there, I, I think there's no doubt that his reference in the latter part of verse 6, where he says, because they're, in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. He's referring to the Shechem incident, incident. It's the only incident in Scripture that's recorded that we could refer to. Whether there are other incidences, we could only surmise, because there's no record of them. But Simeon and Levi had themselves, the two men, slaughtered the male population of the city, which had, had been rendered rather helpless uh, because of their plotting. And then they had taken anything of value, and apparently they had vandalized the rest. And they were so filled with, with, with the desire for revenge for what had been done that they acted in a wanton manner. When they went through the city, they, they took anything they wanted, and apparently some of the other brothers came down and helped them pillage the city. And, and then they took what animals they liked, and apparently whatever animals they didn't want, the inference here from Jacob is that they hamstrung them so that they'd be no use to anyone. And, and Jacob feels that such action is not becoming to, to the clan of Israel, to the representatives of God to a man whose father was a man of peace. And so Jacob is really upset, and he puts a curse upon their anger and upon their wrath. It's very possible, of course, knowing the character of these two persons, and the fact that Scripture does not relate hour by hour and blow by blow life of every individual, that these two individuals had acted in a violent way in other circumstances. And it was characteristic of them that they had been vindictive and vicious in other circumstances. And so he denounced their attitude. 
And you'll notice that he denounces their actions as fierce and cruel. You know, such words are, are strong words to be used of someone who's supposed to be a representative of God. As God's children, if someone said that we were fierce and cruel, that would not be to our credit, I don't think. The word fierce was usually applied in scriptures to the mindless forces of nature. In human relationships, it implies hatred. Hatred. Hatred is not something that should characterize a, a man or a woman of God. The only hatred that's okay, if you want to put it that way for us, is hatred of sin and hatred of evil and hatred of, of the evil one. But nothing else should we hate. And yet these men were obviously characterized by hatred. And the word cruel, which is used here, uh, literally means that they were hard to bear or oppressive, like a heavy yoke upon an animal. In fact, it's the word that more appropriately applies to Pharaoh later on when Israel <coughs> seeks to leave and he just heaps up the burden upon them until it becomes cruel and oppressive. Such a term for men who are going to be the progenitors of two of the tribes of Israel seems inappropriate. In the last half of verse 7, we have Jacob's prophecy concerning Simeon and Levi that they would be separated from each other. They'd been, they'd been together all their lives. Whatever they did, they did together. They thought alike, they acted alike. <coughs> and so what will be the ultimate product of this? They will be separated. And not only will they be separated from each other, but they will be dispersed in Israel. Now, how could Jacob know that? Of his 12 sons, how could he know that certain ones would be great tribes and would be mighty and powerful, and others would be scattered and dispersed within the rest? He couldn't know that, except God revealed it to him. And this prophecy was to be fulfilled in the time of the conquest of Canaan. When the census was taken just before Israel entered Canaan, and you remember uh, you have in the book of Numbers, you have in the book of Deuteronomy, you have several references to censuses taken, two or three of them. And the census that was taken just before Israel entered the land, Simeon was found to be, now think, there are 12 tribes, beginning with Reuben, ending with Benjamin, there are 12 tribes. Simeon was found to be the smallest tribe numerically and Levi the next smallest tribe numerically. These two brothers, second and third in terms of, of uh, age, would produce the two smallest tribes in all of Israel. So small that their combined manpower, adding the two together, would be no more than half that of the tribe of Joseph and so small that the two together were barely larger than the next largest, which was Gad. Their manpower at that time, combined 20 years old and, and upward of men, would be, uh, between the two of them, would be 45,000. Gad was 40,000 by itself. And so we see, first of all, their, huh, the curse is carried out in, in the extent that they are the smallest of all the tribes numerically. 
it's very strange, I think, that in the blessing that Moses pronounced <clears throat> upon the tribes of Israel just before he died, when he blessed Reuben and, and, Reuben, and he blessed Judah, and he blessed Ephraim, and he blessed Manasseh, and, and he went down through the tribes, he does not even mention the tribe of Simeon. Doesn't even mention it. It's as if it had was gone, which it wasn't, but it was not part of the blessing pronounced by Moses. What is further interesting is that Simeon would receive no distinct territory of its own. When you read about the children of Israel moving into the land of Canaan and they're being given territory, it says, you know, Manasseh was given this and the demarcations are mentioned and Gad was given this and they're mentioned in Asher and Zebulon and Issachar. But it's not so for Simeon. It's very interesting what happens to Simeon. They were given land and territory within the land given to another tribe. If we turn to Joshua chapter 19, we can see this. Joshua 19, verse 1. Then the second lot fell to Simeon, to the tribe of the sons of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Judah. Then verse 9. The inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah, for the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them. So the sons of Simeon received an inheritance in the midst of, the, of Judah's inheritance. And so whenever maps are made, of course nobody knows exactly, because there weren't any cartographers running around in those days, drawing up maps and saying, well, from this bush to that mountain over there is, is the border between these two tribes. But from the scripture that's given, they, they usually show here's Judah, big tribal area, and then kind of, kind of a, a, almost a nebulous uh, region within that is called Simeon. And so Simeon is, is totally within the framework of the tribe of Judah in terms of the territory allotted to them. If you read on in, uh, in the Old Testament, you come to 1 Chronicles, and 1 Chronicles begins to talk about, kind of summarizes the situation of Israel in the early years at the time of the conquest and afterwards. And we find that the tribe of Simeon does not multiply like the other tribes, particularly like the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah grows like wildfire. But uh, the uh, tribe of Simeon, eh, a few people here, a few people there, it's kind of like uh, they had uh, a real problem in multiplication. The scripture in that passage in, in 1 Chronicles goes on to say that not only that, some of the Simeonites moved out of the territory of Canaan. Some of them moved down to the territory of the Amalekites. Some of them moved over in the territory of the Edomites, territory which we today would say primarily belonged to the country of Jordan. And so they kind of dispersed, even, even leaving the land that was given to them as an inheritance. And ultimately it seems that the tribe of Simeon was largely, not completely, but largely absorbed by Judah and ceased to be of any significance within the land. In fact, by the time you get to the divided kingdom, you know, after the death of Solomon, uh, you hear basically nothing about Simeon. But there is one interesting little factor here. When you turn, we won't, but when you turn to Revelation chapter 7, and you read about 
the 12,000 from each of the tribes, 144,000 uh, in the end times, the tribe of Simeon is mentioned. So although it tends to kind of dissipate historically, within God's mind, it still is preserved. And somehow there will be Simeonites even in the end. Some people today say, well, how can that be? You know, there's nothing but Jews today. How can there be Simeonites and Issacharites and all the rest of them? Well, God knows that. <clears throat> the ten lost tribes aren't lost. Um, most of them were absorbed, or in part, into the greater tribe of Judah. Scripture tells us that many of them migrated south into Judah at the time that calamities were striking the northern kingdom. And even though people were carried off into captivity by the Assyrians and others, the Scripture clearly tells us that it was just the elite. The, the rank and file were left behind. And they, of course, partially intermarried with groups brought in by the Assyrians and, and produced in part the Samaritans. But nevertheless, the strain of the ten tribes was still in the land to some extent. And even though there's been all kinds of interesting theories about what happened to the ten tribes, you know, you've probably heard of the British Israelites, the idea that the uh, ancient Celts were uh, actually descendants of the tribes of uh, Israel, or that the, uh, the, let's see, the uh, <coughs> Kazakhs, the Kazakhs, the people in southern Russia, uh, were actually descendants of the tribes of Israel. There's a little bit more credence to that because the Kazakhs back about a thousand years ago were Jewish in religion. They followed Judaism. In fact, according to the Russian chronicles, when the Russian Tsar Vladimir was trying to decide what religion his, his country should have, he, he considered Judaism from the Kazakhs as one possible religion that he might inherit. Instead, of course, he ultimately chose Byzantine Orthodoxy. Of course, that whole story there in the Russian Chronicles may be a fabrication, but nevertheless, it gives some kind of an idea of how Russia decided to become an Orthodox country. By the way, you may remember just six years ago, they had their 1,000th anniversary of the uh, baptism of 100,000 people from the city of Kiev in the Dnieper River under the orders of Vladimir, and that was considered to be the date in which Christianity was born in Russia. Of course, under the Soviets, they didn't make a big deal about it, but uh, nevertheless, it was important to the Orthodox people. Like Simeon, Levi was a small tribe, and they, too, were not given a coherent territory. In fact, their territory was less coherent even than that of Simeon. Instead, the scripture clearly tells us that they were given 48 cities scattered through the other tribal territories. If, you go, if you're still in Joshua, if you turn over to the 41st verse of chapter 21, <coughs> all of the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the sons of Israel were 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities, each with its surrounding pasture lands, thus it was with all these cities. So the Levites were given not a coherent piece of property someplace, but a city with its hinterland, its pasture lands, scattered all through from, from actually the east side of the Jordan clear down into the tribal territory of Judah. They were given these 48 cities. And of course, there was a, a good reason for that, as we'll note. The tribe of Levi 
was not absorbed, as Le Simeon seems to have been. The tribe of Levi, in fact, strange as it might seem, given this passage that we have just read, was chosen by God to become the priestly tribe. We might say, God, why would you choose a Levi? Well, let's go to Numbers, the first chapter, verse 47. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribes. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. And the sons of Israel shall camp each man by his own camp, each man by his own standard according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. God is constantly proving that he thinks not as men think. We would say, okay, let's see, who should be the priestly tribe? <laughs> Certainly not Simeon and Levi or Reuben, but God so chose Levi. It was his sovereign choice. Obviously, that was not something that he revealed to Jacob at the time that Jacob made these prophecies. But that they would be scattered is, of course, part of the prophecy. Now, Levi expresses in the actions that take place later on in time both why God might have chosen them and sort of a carryover from the past. Let's look at Exodus chapter 32. Moses has been up on Mount Sinai, but he's been gone so long that the Israelites figure, hey, this man's gone. We don't know what's happened to him. We want to go back to Egypt. So Aaron, you make us a god, and we'll follow that god back to Egypt. And so Aaron, according to Aaron's testimony, got some gold, threw it in the fire, and voila, out came this golden calf. You know, what my fault. Verse 25, I'd like to begin with verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Here we have idolatry in the camp. And when Moses calls for somebody to help him purge the idolatry, lo and behold, who joins to him but the men of Levi? Now you might say that there was a good reason for that. What, what might that reason be? Who was Moses? He was a Levite. So it could be. <laughs> 
But of course, so was Aaron. And, and Aaron was, uh, you know, culpable in the creation of the golden calf. So you could say, hey, you know, choose which brother you want to follow. But anyway, they chose to stand by their fellow tribesmen, Moses. They didn't have to. They could have said, hey, Moses, you're, you know, you're a renegade. We don't want anything to do with you because look what's happened to us out here. But no, they chose to stand with him. But you'll notice this propensity to wield the sword. Now, it's true, they're ordered to do so. But they don't seem to have any reticence about it. You know? Whip out the old sword and, and uh, take care. Now, you know, the passage makes it sound like they just went around randomly killing people. I don't think so. I think what the passage is in effect saying is they went around and they found those most guilty of the idolatry here and slew those individuals that they might be an example in the camp that God is going to purge evil from his people. God had said, I will have no other gods before me. You will not because I will not. And so he dealt with this in a very serious manner. You know, as we think about our lives today, you know, God hasn't changed. God is the same. Now, the way he uh, functions uh, through his word may be a little different. There are those who think that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are, are antithetical. In fact, some have even created heresies whereby the uh, God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is in effect the devil. And Jesus in the New Testament is in effect the good God, you know. And, and this tends to be the way sometimes Gnostics view the whole issue of the Old and the New Testament. But the scripture says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when it says Jesus Christ, it, it means Yahweh of, of the Old Testament as well. And if God looked upon idolatry in such a way then, does he look upon it differently now? I don't really think so. God isn't out ordering the church to go out and slay idolaters. We're to, we're to preach the gospel. But it's with the sword of the word that purging occurs today. And I think that it's very unfortunate for some individuals who fail to come with un, under the sound of the word and yet proclaim themselves to be Christians because they don't have that purging. Now the scripture talks about the washing of the word. It's the word of God that washes us. It's the word of God that cleanses us. And so if we're ignorant of it or we don't pay any attention to it, we're, we're going around with a great deal of baggage that we don't shouldn't have because we're not allowing the word to to cleanse it away from us. I think as we look at this particular uh, passage we, we discover a beautiful prophecy here where Jacob has prophesied that these two sons would be divided and that they would be dispersed in Israel and so accurate was that prophecy. Simeon and Levi were no longer together in the establishment in Canaan. And they became dispersed, particularly Levi, throughout the land. This was so accurate that it was absolutely obvious that this could not have been Jacob's you know, brilliant thought. Let's see now, what will happen to these two guys? Yeah, I know. No, it had to be the mind of the Lord coming through Jacob as he prophesied the dispersion of the tribes that would come from these two sons. Well, let's, uh, let's at least begin Judah. Back in the 49th chapter, 
of Genesis, beginning at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be upon the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp, or cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His teeth are dull, literally. Uh, I mean, his eyes. His eyes are dull, literally uh, dark as wine, and his teeth white from milk. When Moses died, or was about to die, Joshua, Samuel, David, these, these great men of Scripture, as they were about to die, they had a, a clarity of thought it seems that they had not had earlier in their lives. And so it seems to be with Jacob. As he's in these dying hours, he's able to understand reality more than he could at any earlier point in his life. And the reason, I think, is pretty simple. First of all, certainly it was at least in part the product of 147 years of experience. You know, by the time you put in 147 years, you ought to be relatively good at whatever you do, you know. And, and in his case, at the experience of life. But I think we have to realize that this is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit that gave him understanding and foresight. But how do you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? You know, we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit primarily through the Word. That's why if we don't read it, we don't hear Him. But he didn't have a word to read and thus to hear the Spirit of God through that word. But on his deathbed, material things were beginning to mean pretty little. <laughs> and the responsibilities of this life were no longer dominating his thinking. After all, he was transferring the mantle of power he didn't have to worry about tomorrow. And you know, if all of those burdens are suddenly taken away, and, and you have no concern about this life any longer, the cares of it, the responsibilities of it, you can be pretty open to what God might say. Because you know that shortly you're going to be in God's presence. So hearing from Him could be pretty important. And so when we know in the case of Elijah, remember, who was up on the Mount Sinai, uh, there, there was the earthquake and there was the thunderstorm and there was the wind. And in all of that, he didn't hear God's voice. But then in the still quiet of the morning, suddenly he hears the still small voice, the scripture says, of the Spirit of God. God doesn't always yell at us. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it's kind of smack upside the head and say, you know, wake up. But usually it's the still small voice. That's why so many of us don't hear him very often, because we're roaring around and there's no quiet and no time to hear the still small voice. But on your deathbed, you have time to listen, because there's not much else to do. And so he heard, heard the, the voice of the Spirit, and he think, I think he had a clarity of mind and a clarity of heart that he had not had before, because these other things were lifted from his shoulders. 
and he was able to prophesy concerning the son from whom would arise the greatest of the tribes of Israel. And this prophecy and the one concerning Joseph are the only prophecies in this whole passage in the 49th chapter of unmitigated blessing. As we have noted already, the prophecy concerning Reuben was not uh, very good for Reuben. Neither was that for Simeon and Levi. But suddenly for Judah, you have a 180 degree turnaround. And as you read through this prophecy of Judah, there is not a negative statement or even a negative inference in the whole prophecy. Think about that. Judah married a Canaanite and had two of his sons murdered by God because they were so vile. And yet there's not a negative thing said about Judah. And in many ways, this is the central prophecy. Although the prophecy concerning Joseph, given later along, is longer in words and is also just as positive and is a powerful prophecy, the one concerning Judah has to be considered the central prophecy. And much of that, of course, focuses around the 10th verse and the reference made to Shiloh. We don't have time, of course, today to develop that, but that will be one of the themes that we'll talk about next week as we focus on this, which is obviously a reference to Messiah. As you put it in context and even take it out of context and look at other possibilities, this is obviously the focus. And so next Sunday, we'll, we'll look at Judah and uh, probably move on to some of the others.